Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for this tremendous privilege we have to come together to worship you, to praise you, to sing your, your praises, and to hear your word. I pray as we look into this extremely important passage, Lord, you grant me the ability and skills to share it exactly as you desire. Lord, that uh, you would be pleased uh, in our response to your word and you'll be glorified. We ask you to bless your t- this time in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you think of first place? When we're kids, we think of first place in like a race, first place in a game, whatever it might be. The person who wins is in first place, right? You look at the Olympics, they have first, second, third. Well, at least for now, pretty soon they might change that these days with all the woke stuff. But uh, the reality is we have first, second, third. We have the top, the best. And uh, as uh, we apply these thoughts to the church and we apply it to our relationship with the Lord, my question would be is who is in first place in your life? Who's in first place in your life? Is it the Lord? Or is it uh, you? Okay. Well, I'm praying I don't get distracted here. I'm getting distracted. But uh, uh, if you turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 18. And we're going to be answering the question, do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is? You know, uh, we come to an accurate picture of who he is and we get saved or we don't get saved. We need to believe that he is God. We need to believe that he took on human flesh. We need to believe that he died for our sins. We need to believe that he rose from the dead. We need to believe that in him alone is the forgiveness of sins. But yet, as we go along in the Christian life, our view of Jesus can get obscured by so many things in our lives, whether it's trials or people or issues or whatever it might be, just the things going on in this world. There's so much going on in our country right now. It can pull your eyes off of Jesus. And there are bad guys and bad ladies out there who want to distort your view of Jesus. You see, if we don't see him correctly, we are vulnerable to being uh, attacked and to falling into those attacks from the evil one through evil people. Now, we've been studying the book of Colossians, and Paul is under house arrest uh, in Rome. It's about 62 AD. And although he has never visited Colossae, uh, he has heard from Epaphras, uh, the Colossian spiritual father who brought them the gospel of their faith and their love, their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. And he has also heard that there are threats, that there are those attempting to delude them with persuasive arguments. We'll see in chapter two, even to kidnap them. That's the word we'll see. To spiritually kidnap believers uh, through uh, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of man rather than the truth of God and the wisdom of God in whom Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the Apostle Paul writes this book to address this issue. Uh, he talks about all the stuff the bad guys are saying. says these are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Hey, if you're a believer, you go, hey, I don't want to sin. I want to do the right thing. But it's so much easier at times to have a little list of things to do rather than to trust the Lord. It's actually the good fight of faith. It's a battle to trust the Lord or to trust in other things. And there are those who will come in the name of Christ bringing other things. And so the Apostle Paul writes this book, and the solution to that, these threats, is a focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And within this, we've been seeing that the Apostle Paul was so thankful for their faith. He was so thankful that they love one another. And also within that, he's praying for them that they would be filled with the true knowledge of his will. When his word is filling my heart, when I'm letting it dwell richly, when I'm allowing his peace to rule me, that I'm controlled by the Lord through his word, by his spirit. And that's going to bring about a walk that is worthy. And we saw that worthy walk, that walk uh, that uh, bears fruit, uh, increases in the knowledge of God and, and um that it it brings about patience and steadfastness for enduring. And then we're joyously giving thanks that God has given us and qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And so we're praising God and thanking him for that. And I tell you, when you're not thanking God for your salvation, you're probably complaining about something, you know, because we got a lot to complain about. 
if you live in this world, and I know you do, complain about our government, complain about our country, complain about your work, complain about your car, complain about your spouse, complain about your dog, whatever it might be, we have lots to complain about because lots goes wrong. A lot goes wrong, lots goes wrong, a lot goes wrong. Um, but uh, within that, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ because he is the solution to every problem. He is a solution. So with that in mind, uh, we might remember we saw last time that he was and is preeminent. He is the one who created all things, and they were all created for him and by him, and they were for him. And so we have this we have the supreme Lord of all creation, um, this tremendous reality uh, that uh, because of what he has done and what he's created, that we need to worship him. He's God. And because he's Lord, we need to obey him. And because we were made for him, we need to yield to his will. Should, what should, should, should the clay tell the potter what to do, right? And because he holds all things together, we need to trust him. We need to trust the Lord. And so we came to this understanding of the view of Jesus concerning his first creation. And so I want to look at now today what Paul shares concerning his new creation, as we'll see, which is the body of Christ. So let's take a look at our passage. We're going to look at one verse today, but I want to read around it because it's all connected, as I've shared, and we need to see the context. So let's go back to what we saw last week and start there as we read. Colossians 1.15, And he is the image of the invisible God. That's speaking of his beloved son, speaking of Jesus in context. The firstborn of all creation. We'll talk about that again. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's really a summary of the preeminence of Christ over his first creation, this created world, right? And then here's our passage for us today. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And then I'm going to read on here because it is connected, but we won't get to it today. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What a wonderful passage. And as I briefly mentioned, uh, we need to have a view of Jesus that is correct. We need to have our view renewed because he is the one we trust in. He is the one we believe in. He is the one we need to look to. And as I mentioned last week, we saw that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the supreme Lord over his creation because he created all things, and they were all created for him, and he holds them all together. Again, verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I went through a myriad of scriptures last week concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. If you need a list, go back to that message, get out your pen and paper, and write them down. There are so many scriptures concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And we also saw this term firstborn, which speaks of preeminence, having the rights over all things. And why? Because he created it all. If you create it, you got the rights over it. You got the rights over it. For by all, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He's a supreme Lord who has rights over all his creation because he created it all. He is Lord over all, including you and I including you and I. Do you believe this? Yes. And then we saw that he created it all for himself. We are so often the center of our worlds. 
You look at these people today on TV that don't know the Lord and we pray for them. They are so self-centered. It is all about them. And when life goes wrong, it's everyone else's fault and the, you know, the suicide rate and all this stuff and blame, blame, blame. It's just like a horrible picture of sin. We see it. And we were there. We were once foolish ourselves. But God saved us. He saved us. And so here, God has created, we see here, through Jesus Christ, all things. And it is for him. It is for him. And then we saw that he is a creator who, in, in him, end of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Down to the smallest atom, or whatever it might be, he holds it all together. Uh, he's holding it all together. He holds us together if we're willing to let him, right? We're going to let him. Oh, Lord, hold me together. I'm falling apart, right? Hold me together. And he will. He's faithful. Trust him. Trust him. So the question is, do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is? He is God, the supreme Lord of all creation, because he created it all, and it was created uh, for his good pleasure, created for him, right? It's created by him and for him. And so at this point, Paul now giving a picture of his first creation, the original creation, which includes everything, he now points out the same thing, but concerning the new creation, that Jesus Christ is Lord over the new creation because he brought it about through his death, burial, and resurrection. Because he brought it about. Notice in verse 18, we're going to see, first of all, Christ is the head of the body, his body, the church, the new creation. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. Now, I usually like the NASB 77. It's an excellent translation, but unfortunately, they don't translate the and here that begins our verse. They translate it also instead. It should be and. And he is. Because the and makes it clear that it's connected to the verses before, which speak of who this is speaking of. His beloved son, verse 14. If you follow the grammar, it's speaking about his beloved son, referring to God the Son, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned last week we, don't, we didn't see something in our verse uh, but that was happening in the Greek. It's literally, and he himself. And he himself. We see that is before all things in verse 17, he himself. But it's also in verse 18, exact same Greek phraseology. And he himself, and he himself, it's, it's emphatic, it's reflexive, they would say. He himself, it is focusing on him. He himself is before all things. And then here, and he himself is the head of the body, the church. Again, the context is he himself is none other than the Father's beloved Son, who is God, Lord over his creation, because he created it all for himself. And he holds it all together. So here, he says here, he is also the head of the body of the church, or he himself, or you could say it this way, and he himself is, present tense, continually, habitually, head of the body, the church. He himself is. Now at this point, it would be wise to gain an understanding of what the church is. What the church is. You might remember the little children's game, you know, I don't know if I can do it with my hands now. Here's the church, here's the steeple inside all the people, you know. So it's like the building's a church. Well, but that's not right. Now, the unredeemed most often see the church as merely a building, a denomination, a religious country club, a place to be on Sunday for funerals and weddings and times of crisis. That's the church. It's a place. Now, those misconceptions are quite obvious to most true believers, yet unfortunately the current evangelical church has taken on worldly practices, treating the church as a human organization rather than, as we'll see, a spiritual organism. Running it like a human business, the church is a business, rather than, as we will see, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. So with that in mind, what does this term church mean? We say the term church, church. Right? Well, we say that. In its simplest form, it's the Greek word ekklesia, which speaks of called out ones. The term ek means out from. Klesis speaks of a calling, called out ones. In its very basic form, it could be translated assembly or, or a group of people in a sense, a gathering or a meeting. 
Now, after uh, being introduced in Matthew 16, verse 18, which we'll see Jesus says, I will build my church. That's the first time we see it in the New Testament. And then we see it in Matthew 18. uh, And then we see it all throughout uh, the epistles. Uh, We see that it is his church. It is his church. Now, with that in mind, we see that it's his church because he purchased it with his own blood. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. These called out ones, an assembly of believers, as we'll see. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, his last words to them. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, what? The ecclesia of God, God's church, which he what? Purchased with his own blood. That says Jesus is God there, by the way. He purchased it with his own blood. The church has been bought with a price. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been bought with a price. Jesus paid the price for your sins. Now, the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was not revealed uh, in the Old Testament, Uh, But it was born, in a sense, after Jesus ascended on the day of Pentecost when Jesus had told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, and then they would be his witnesses. They received the Spirit of God. And we see that now when believers come to faith, they're indwelt with the Spirit of God. And so from that point on, we see the called out ones being spoken of quite a bit in the book of Acts. We see it quite a bit in the epistles. And we're going to see that this church is none other than the body of Christ. Uh, Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been placed into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. I'm going to give a few other little things about the church, and we'll get to that understanding of the body of Christ in a minute. But we see that the church is often spoken of when assembled. When assembled. 1 Corinthians 11 this isn't a bad time here, but it still gives us an understanding. First Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. So yes, we are the church, but we come together as the body of Christ. We assemble as the church, you see. We see in Philemon chapter 1, was only one chapter, verse 2, and to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. That's believers meeting in a house. We're the church in the basement right now. (laughs) Or wherever it might be, right? We're meeting together. We're assembling together. Concerning a brother who is in sin, in Matthew 18, after after trying to win him by exposing sin privately and then going to him with two or three witnesses, Jesus said, Matthew 18, you are to tell it to the church. Does that mean you're to go to the building and talk to the building? You tell it to the body of Christ, the assembled body of Christ, the church. Tell it to the church. We see in uh, James James 5, verse 14, that concerning those who are sin sick, by the way, and that's the the context, they're to call for the elders of the church. Church has leadership. What about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5? But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? It's God's people, and they're being taken care of spiritually. They're being watched over, overseen. And the church is identified at times throughout Scripture by its location of where they are coming together. For instance, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. That means that's a church with a bunch of Laodicean believers in it. And they gather together. They gather together. And we also see there is teaching in the church. Initially, when the foundation was being laid, apostles and prophets, now through teachers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He is appointed in the church. The church. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? He says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. The word of God is taught to the body of Christ assembled in the church. 
we see that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. First Timothy 3.15. But in case I'm delayed, Paul writes to Timothy, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. There's certain ways we ought to be within the body of Christ in the household of God. Was we assemble together? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. And I alluded to this earlier, but do not forget, it is not my church, or at least I go here. It's not your church, well, at least you go here. It always bothered me, and I, I take it with a grain of salt. I don't want to pick, parse words, because people's intent aren't what, what we think at times. People say, that's Greg's church. Well, no, it's not. It's the Lord's church. It's the Lord's church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's his church, as we're going to see. And it's his church because he's the head. It's his church because he's the originator who brought it about through his blood uh, and red death and burial and resurrection. It's his church. So now within our passage, back in our passage, notice he is the head of the body, the church. So what is this term, the body? The body. So he is the head of the body, he is the head of the church. Those two words are in opposition, which means he's saying the same thing. Um, I am Greg, husband. Greg and husband, right? He's the head of the body of the church, right? Okay, that's what he's... So here we have this term body, which is clearly the church. Just clearly the church. Indeed, Paul made this clear. Turn a little farther up in first, or excuse me, first, but Colossians 1, uh, 24, 1, 24. Just a little ways up. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh uh, I do my share. He's like rejoicing in it. Um, on behalf of his body, which is the church. Can't be clearer than that, can it? His body, which is the church. We see in Ephesians 1 that all, he put all things in subjection under his feet, 122, and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, Ephesians 1, 23. Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The body is the church, and we're going to see it's the body. But yet, what is it? It's the body of Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, God hasn't left us in the dark. He has given us uh, an understanding through our own bodies, in a sense. We have this metaphorical understanding. He's talking about the body of Christ metaphorically, in a sense. We can understand our physical bodies, and those model and illustrate the spiritual bodies, we're going to see. Because he says here, he is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. And so, like our physical bodies have many members and one head. I have one head, but I've got lots of fingers. I've got lots of toes. I've got arms. I've got all kinds of members. So there's many members. And indeed, Paul elaborates on this. Romans chapter 12. Let's turn to Romans 12. Romans 12, 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. That's speaking of physical body, right? Uh he says, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're connected. This thumb is part of this body with this forefinger. They're connected. We're connected here under the head, right? How about 1 Corinthians twelve twelve? Turn there. For even as the body is one yet has many members, that's just speaking of a physical body, and the members of the body, though there are many, are one body. So also is Christ. Many members, not all the same functions. It would be kind of an ugly body if it was all a toe or all a finger or all a thumb or whatever. So we get the picture here that with our one physical body, there are many different parts, but there's the head that controls the body. The head that controls the body. And so also in the spiritual, we have Jesus Christ as the head of his body, 
the body of Christ. It is his body. We are a part of it. We are members of it. Now, the unbelieving world and the unbelieving church uh, sees how they get into this church through rituals. When they think of church, they think of, oh, hey, we've got to do baptism. We've got to do membership, whatever it might be. That's how I become part of the church. But for the true church, the body of Christ, how is it that we become part of the body of Christ? Well, Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. We were, when we believe, we were placed into the term baptized, or bapto means to place into. They would take a cloth and place it into, baptize it into dye, and it would come out a different color. We are identified with what we are placed into. And when we believe, the Spirit of God placed us into the body of Christ, and we are now identified as those in the body of Christ. So how do we become a part of this body? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he explains, for all of you who were baptized are placed into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourself with Christ. When we believed in Jesus Christ, we received the Spirit of God and we were placed into union with Christ and other members of the body. We are in the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And see now, his death and resurrection applies to us. And we are have been redeemed and physically, uh, we've been redeemed we've been forgiven and cleansed of our sins and we are in christ we are also new creations it's a new creation the body of christ is not something old it is a new creation we are new creations when we enter a relationship with jesus christ we were created initially the old creation that old creation is running down i tell you that but we are new creations in christ 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should live no longer for themselves. That means when your desires pop up, you want something. Mm -mm, I want his desire, right? Themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. We don't see you in your fleshly body as that's who you are, because you're someone else. You're someone else. He says here, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, we're in the body of Christ, we have a relationship with him through faith, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and new things have come. This is the new creation. This is the new creation. So the church is a living organism. It is a spiritual organism uh, it is the body of Christ. It is consists of those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. It consists of those who have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. So my question is this. Have you become a member of the church? What do I mean by that? Are you in the body of Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you believed in him? Because that's when you become part of the body of Christ. So back to our passage. It says, He all is also head of the body, the church. Okay, so now with the understanding of what he says, he's the head. He's the head. Okay, pretty simple illustration, but this is one of the most ignored truths in the lives of many believers and in churches. Let me give you some um, examples, physically speaking. Let me illustrate. Does the physical body take its commands and direction from the toes? No. Does the physical body take its commands and directions from our backsides? No. From our shoulders, from our legs, from our parts, from our fingernails? No. It doesn't take its direction from the members. It is the head that controls the physical body. And when the physical body is not being controlled by the head, the physical body, it, it looks, looks wrong. Something's wrong. Take this horrible disease, MS. Horrible disease. 
And unfortunately, some of you are well aware that in MS, the brain slowly no longer controls the body because the pathways are broken down. And when the brain ceases to control the body, we have disaster. And it is very obvious to those who are healthy. Sad thing. Well, praise the Lord. If you have that and you're a believer, you're getting a new body. So praise the Lord. So too with the church. When the body ceases to submit to the head individually and corporately, we have disaster, which is obvious to all who are healthy. We have disaster. So what's the problem in the church in America? No headship. No headship. There's a quote from an old Greek uh, manuscript using one of these words concerning preeminence and headship. It says, never, this is years, thousands of years ago, never does a house fail to come to grief when the woman takes the lead in everything. Now that could be all of us, the woman, the men. When we take the lead in the body of Christ, we are in trouble. We are in deep trouble because he is the head. And God has ordered relationships. He has ordered relationships. And he is, not will be, not might be, he is the body, he is the head of the body. Now I ask you, have you ever seen a chicken with its head cut off? Running around, flapping, gyrating. That's what the church looks like these days. Church fundraisers, fireworks stands, secret sensitive services, auditions for musical talent, gourmet coffee, uh, every type of ministry and program you can think of. Sermons about the word are yet, yet worse about books rather than the preaching of the word, and it goes on and on. You look at it, it's a chicken with its head cut off. The problem is there are those who follow those who are not holding fast to the head. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Turn there just up a little bit. You see, we could be defrauded of our reward and our prize, by the way, if we listen to these people. If you yoke yourself, you listen to them, you can be defrauded of your prize. Colossians 2.18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking the stand of visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. That is Christ, the head of the body Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Our problem individually is not holding fast to the head. Our problem in the church is not holding fast to the head. He is the head. He has rights over us. He is to direct us if we let him direct us. Otherwise, something's very wrong. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build your church. He said, I'm going to build my church. And clearly, he is the cornerstone of the, of the foundation of the church. We see that in First uh, Peter chapter 2, we see, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice cornerstone, a precious cornerstone. Whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. We see in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been, already done, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The reality is, he builds us up. He's the head. He's the one that is the cornerstone of the church. And again, I just mentioned that, but what is it that builds us up in the church? Turn to Ephesians 4. You want to see the whole, the whole context here as we look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.11. Context is to walk in a manner worthy. And uh, he's given um, certain giftings to bring about maturity and, and faith in uh, the Son of God. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now, they're the ones that bring the word out, right? Apostles and prophets, uh, foundational. We have the word of God. Uh, evangelists bring the foundational gospel, right? And pastor teachers, right? Pastor teachers. For the equipping of the, of the ain'ts, the saints, right? <laughs> equipping of the saints, right? For the work of service to the building up. Notice this, of what? The body of Christ. That's us individually and together. 
He says here, until we obtain what? The unity, here's the goal, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's about Jesus. To mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, being built up by those gifts through the word of God, right? Um, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's bad people out there, by the way. God's telling you that. But speaking the truth in love, notice this, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And what is it that builds us up? It's the word of God. Acts 20. 32, and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. It is God through his word, by his spirit, that directs his body. And we choose either to submit to God or to rebel against him. He gives us clear instructions, and that's why we need to be filled with the knowledge of his will and then willing to do it and trusting him and letting him work it through us. It's the word of God. It equips us and builds us so that we'll function properly under the head. The head is telling us what to do, sending the signals through the word of God to us, what to do. Now, does your life resemble a life connected to the head, submitting to him, or are you disconnected, tossed over, bringing shame to his name? Does your church resemble a church connected to the head? Is everything done in humble dependence to the head of the church, uh, Lord Jesus, through his word? And if he is the head, and he is, then we need to listen to him, and we need to obey him. So then, we have an accurate picture of Jesus concerning the church. He is the head of the body of the church. But notice also... He is uh, the supreme Lord over this, this new creation. He's not just the head, he's also the Lord of it. Notice what it says here. And he himself is that he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Notice he says here, first of all, he is the beginning. You go, what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? He's not saying, it's in the, and it's in the present tense, he is continually, habitually the beginning. It's not saying he was the beginning. He's continued. The word beginning is arche. It speaks of the beginning. It speaks of the source or originating power. It speaks of, uh, uh, and carries the idea of priority in time and dignity in position. Jesus Christ is the source. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of the church. Nothing came about in the church apart from him. He, that makes him preeminent. He's who brought it about us. We'll see. He is the originating, originating power. He's the active cause, continually, habitually. No one comes into the church apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. No one is part of the body of Christ apart from that. It originates in him. We saw this new birth earlier in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. We saw that we are to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And we are new creations in Christ. So if he is the head of the church and he is the ongoing source originating power, it's not us then, right? So we need to trust him. We don't make things up. We don't decide what goes on in the church. He's the beginning. We don't, we, don't, we don't have anything to do with that. He is the one who is the source in power. Now, we need to function by God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. You know, when we function by man's wisdom, it's adultery, and we need to confess because God gives a greater grace. And therefore, he says, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, right? If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You want to go the world's ways in your life? You want to take on their advice? 
You're putting yourself at odds with the Lord, by the way. The blessed man does not uh, listen or sit in the, or walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? But in God's law, he meditates day and night. So then he is the supreme Lord being the founder, in a sense, the beginning, the RK, right? He's the beginning. He is. And then notice what it says here. And he is the first, or he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here we go with this firstborn thing again, right? This term prototokos. And if you'll remember in last week's sermon, we spent a lot of time on it. You might want to go back and look at that sermon and listen to it if you have questions. But firstborn can speak of firstborn chronologically, absolutely. But it primarily refers to the position or rank that usually the firstborn would have. But it primarily refers to position or rank. For indeed, Esau was firstborn, but Jacob was considered my firstborn. He was the firstborn. In uh, Exodus 4.22, Israel is considered the firstborn, although it's not the first of the nations. Speaking of David and prophetically the Messiah in Psalm 89.27, God says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. The highest rank, the preeminent one, the one who is the preeminent one. So it's clear that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. We know that's supreme Lord because he created everything. But what does this first mean here? He is the beginning, the firstborn. Notice what he says, from the dead. What does that mean? It's difficult to interpret, but I don't think so totally. I think we can understand if we trust the Lord and allow him to illumine our hearts by his spirit. So what does this mean? Was he the first man to be resurrected? That's not the case. So it can't be the firstborn from the dead in terms of the first resurrection, right? Lazarus was resurrected. We got those bodies when this veil was torn, when Jesus went in the tomb, veil was torn. I don't know, when, when, excuse me, when he died and the veil was torn, there were bodies that were raised from the dead. Now, given they went back to the grave and they decayed. And his resurrection is unique because he would not go back to the grave, given there's that. But I think this has to do with the fact that his is the preeminent resurrection. It is the one on which all of our resurrections are based. He is the preeminent one. It is how we get into the body of Christ. It's how we are delivered through what he has done. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll see this. You see, he had to rise from the dead. He had to. And his resurrection is the preeminent one. It is the resurrection on which all of our resurrections hinge. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? There were some bad people in the Corinth saying, hey, there's no resurrection. He's saying, well, wait a second. If you say that, there's some implications that are very terrible. Notice what he says here. But if there's no resurrection from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 13, not even Christ has been raised because he was man, right? And he died and he rose from the dead, right? He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For by since for since by a man came death, by also by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. His resurrection is preeminent. The reason why he is in exalted position is because he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is it's his resurrection that is the most important. And therefore he has rights over his new creation because he brought it about. He brought about the old creation. God said, and it was, right? And he brought about us through dying for us and being raised from the dead. Christ is the supreme Lord of creation. 
What does John say in, in Revelation 1.5? He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He says, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. That great. A little farther down in Revelation 1.17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. This is John. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first, the arche, or the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ is the supreme Lord of his new creation, the church, because he's the originator, the beginning, because he is the source of life, being the firstborn from the dead. Having defeated Satan and death through his death and resurrection, he has the keys to death and Hades. So now why is he the beginning? Why is he the first one from the dead? Why is he the preeminent one? Why did God chose, choose his son to do so? Why did he send Jesus? Why Jesus? Notice we have an explanation here in our passage, and we'll finish with this. Chapter 1, verse 18. And he, he is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. That's the, that's the source, in a sense. He's the first one from the dead, the preeminent resurrector. Uh, resurrected, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. That's the reason. He is the creator that every knee would bow, every tongue confess. He is also the redeemer that every knee and every tongue would confess. He is the creator of the first creation and the creator of the second creation, that everyone would honor Christ. This word henna here, so that, speaks of purpose. So that, now if we just had just as he would come first place, we understand that. But we may not get a full view of it. We don't have time, but it's the four in verse 19 that helps us explain this. That he might come to have first place in everything, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or in heaven, and although you were formerly alien and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That he might have first place because he's the one who saved us. He's the one who did the work. So why is Jesus the head of the body, the church, the beginning? God gives us some insight. He gives us, let me, let me phrase it this way. Why would the Father have Jesus reconcile all things to himself and make peace to the blood of his cross? Why would the Father have Jesus reconcile us in his fleshly body through death in order to present us holy and blameless? Why would he do so? So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. You see, God had first place until there was sin and rebellion. Man took over, rebelled. Man became first place. And man continues in this place of self-prominence. This term first place, proteo, means to be preeminent, to be first, to be held in the chief place. And because of sin, man holds himself in the chief place. And so it is through what Christ has done that Christ is put back in first place as the preeminent one. All of Jesus' redemptive activity was designed to place in a position of ultimate preeminence. Certainly to save us too. We know that he loves us. There's more things than just this. Position of absolute preeminence that was, that was temporarily and voluntarily yielded to men through their sin and now has been taken back through the victory at the cross. For instance, because of Jesus' redemptive work, every knee will bow. Look at Philippians. We read this in our offertory time, but look at Philippians. Notice how it's connected to his work. Notice how it's connected to the work on the cross. Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude which was, or this mind, this, this thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of, the bond, of a bondservant, and being made like this in the, like some man and being found appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name, you could, it's literally the name Jesus possesses, by the way, that was Lord, by the way, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It is through his redemptive activity, whether received or not, that he is brought forth and fully seen and will be seen as Lord to all. And every knee will bow. That he might have first place. First place. So then Christ is the supreme Lord of the new creation. The church. Because the church originates from him. He's the source. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. So let me ask you this. Does Jesus who died for you and rose from the dead who gave you eternal life, have first place in your life? Does he have first place? Does he have preeminence? That means his word is above your word. His word is priority. His desires are the priority. Today we've seen an accurate picture of who Christ is, the supreme Lord of his first creation and the supreme Lord of his new creation. And this is so that he himself, and it's emphatic there, might have might come to have first place in everything. Now you can voluntarily give him first place today by acknowledging your sins, by acknowledging your need for a Savior, and calling upon him to be saved, and bowing your knee to him. Or you will bow your knee if in, in judgment and then eternal punishment. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some of you name the name of Christ, uh, but you might be deceiving yourself. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You give me preeminence, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? If you don't know the Lord, repent for it's too late. Now, if we're a believer, does Jesus have preeminence in your life? It's that he have first place. Think about it. Small things, big things, whatever it might be, when you're struggling with something, do you go to him? Does he have first place? Does he have the priority in your mind? Is he placed in the top? It's that he would have first place. So when we're thinking, by the way, about what he's done for us, he gets first place. When we're joyously giving thanks for what he's done, and we start thinking about salvation, it goes right to first place, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for what we've seen, and I pray that we would re-exalt Christ in our hearts, as Lord of our hearts, that we would set him apart as so, that he would have first place, Lord God, that he would be preeminent in our hearts, preeminent in our marriages, our, our our work at church and our daily lives, Lord God, that Christ would be first. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that uh, those of us who've come to faith are willingly and gladly bowing our knees and praising him for what he's done. I do pray for anyone who has not bowed their knee before Christ yet, that they would do so before they will be forced to and they will do as they enter into eternal punishment. Pray they do so. So again, thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.